This is the Money Talks podcast with Michael Campbell. Thanks for joining me. You know, all signs are pointing to a federal election, well, coming soon. And regardless of what party or leader you support, I think there's one pivotal question that we all need to answer before we get into the official campaign. And I'll get to that in a moment. Also, one of the biggest investment heavyweights in the world is now weighed in on the inflation debate. I'll also be joined by Big Picture Trading's Patrick Sarizna to talk about gold, oil, copper, and one thing I think all of us should do with our investments right now. Ozzy Jurek, by the way, on why governments are reacting to the supposed risk in the housing market. Well, I should say overreacting to it. And don't miss this week's Goofy. It's about an attitude that I just personally can't figure out when it comes to human rights. But first, you know, with a federal election in the offing, I want to ask you a key Make that the key question. It doesn't matter what party or leader you support. Simply put, do you think the economic, the financial, the technological, the social, including our health environment we're in, dictates that it's kind of business as usual? Or are things different, dramatically different, and hence begs policies that need to address these changes? I'm asking this because... I don't know how anyone could possibly argue that things haven't changed so dramatically that it necessitates different approaches, different ideas. Although I have to admit that I don't have much confidence our leaders are going to be up to this challenge. As former Attorney General Judy Wilson-Raybould stated in a recent letter outlining her reasons for not seeking re-election, in quotes, initially I thought the pandemic would reinforce the urgent need to make our governing institutions work better, and for a time it did, but all too quickly we saw a return to more common patterns of self-interested partisanship, game-playing, and jockeying for advantage. Well, I kind of think that's what the federal election could turn into. But that observation, by the way, didn't get near enough attention. All too quickly, we saw a return to more common patterns of self-interested partisanship, game-playing, and jockeying for advantage. You know, I said the same thing last March. I thought the economic fallout from the decision to lock down the economy would force politicians to get realistic about the need for a strong economic recovery. I thought it would force them to do away with policy prescriptions that actually hurt economic growth. Well, I was wrong. As I commented, within one week of the lockdowns, I couldn't believe how fast some politicians jumped right back on their favorite hobby horses. All I'm saying is that business as usual, politicians promising billions in new spending, all of it borrowed money. This is on top now, though, the biggest debt burden in history. I say it's not going to cut it. It's also a fact that the world is awash with debt, by the way, $280 trillion estimated. And that's important to recognize because credit markets, where governments borrow, are global, not just domestic. I still think any debt-related problems that we're going to face are going to originate starting outside our border, just like the subprime mortgage crisis of 2008 did. Hey, an American problem that caused huge repercussions in Canada. I hope I'm wrong, but I don't have a lot of faith that our political leaders will address any of these issues. Actually, I think we already got a preview, by the way, of what we can expect And it is business as usual as the prime minister, cabinet ministers crisscross the country promising billions in new spending as if it was 2015 campaign or the 2019 campaign. And there's not even been a mention or a question how we're going to pay for it. A lot of glad-handing politicians, municipal, provincial, federal, without an inkling of how they're going to pay for it. 
Now, only if you think there's nothing fundamental that has changed economically, financially, in terms of social cohesion. How about geopolitically? With the rise of China, takeover of Hong Kong, the threats to Canadian citizens, the warnings by CSIS and the Canadian military. Well, if you think nothing's fundamental change there, then I guess more of the same is okay. If you think that Canada's debt load, which has risen more in two years than the previous 152 combined, or if you think that having three times more Canadians, 170,000 people, who've been without a job for over a year, now that's compared to just before the pandemic in January 2020, you think that's no big deal? Well, I guess it is business as usual for you. If you think the upswing in virus cases, particularly variants, which has now forced Australia into lockdown again, has Thailand breaking records, I guess you think that's no big deal. What about the polls and the massive protests in major cities throughout the world, including Cuba this past week, that signal a sharp decrease in social cohesion? Should we ignore that growing discard? I mean, more Canadians think we're more have more problems, less unity in the country than we've ever had. But should we ignore it? I mean, it comes down to whether you think we're in a country and a world that is undergoing significant change or we're not. It's either business as usual or it's not. That's the question that needs to be answered before we get into a federal election campaign. It needs to be answered by all politicians. All of us should answer that question. Everyone in the media. Because if it's not business as usual, the world has changed. And I am talking especially economically, financially, geopolitically, in terms of social cohesion, then this better be a very different federal election campaign. I mean, if you care about our future, our children's future, then you should demand policies that acknowledge and address the changes. The media should cover it that way. After all, we're talking about our future. I mean, the usual platitudes and predictable virtue signaling won't cut it. I want to see if our leaders have something substantive to offer. Personally, I do cringe at the thought of a federal election campaign because it means an avalanche of BS, superficiality, disrespect for our intelligence that's coming our way. On a personal level, I'm always distressed to see reporters going along with it. I would love to see some meaningful financial questions because of the record debt, because of the pandemic is not over, especially in developing countries, and because of our declining competitiveness ranking, our falling investment uh, capital investment numbers. Yeah, I'd like to see some meaningful fi financial questions. The world is so drastically and obviously different. And it doesn't matter what party or candidate you support. Their policies need to reflect that reality. We'll see. I got a great show planned for you today. We're going to be talking, by the way, the big inflation debate is still on, but a real heavyweight has weighed into it. A hint on the inflation side, which has huge implications. Michael Levy's up with us next. We've also got Patrick Serizno. We've also got uh, lots of talk about uh, real estate, really interesting stats discussing with us the size of the down payment that Canadians have been making. And I think it's got implications for policy. Michael Levy joins me on the line now. The big inflation debate, is it short term? And we had the June numbers in the States at about 5. I think it's 5.2%. Uh, Canada, we're still operating at about three and a half, but we'll get the latest numbers. We don't have our June update yet. But is it going to be with us for a long time? Or is it going to be just short term? 
Well, a real heavyweight weighed in on this issue this week, and I'm going to go to Michael Levy to get the latest. Michael, give us some details. Well, Larry Fink, and he's the CEO of BlackRock. That's the world's largest money managers. By the way, BlackRock has about $9.5 trillion under management uh, as of the end of June. So Larry Fink doesn't talk very much, Mike, but when he does, and he's got something to say, everybody listens. And um, uh, he's saying that inflation is not going to be transitory, and uh, he backed that up right away by doing a blanket raise for all his employees because he figures that it's going to cost more to live. But these kind of raises that he's talking about and with people coming back into the workforce and with employers having to pay more money and with the amount in pent-up savings, there could be an explosion, a mini-explosion, of inflation. So uh, he is really, really worried about it. And he said uh, in an interview with Bloomberg that inflation will bring about an epic change. And I, I, th- I think we have to underline those words, the epic change. Well, and of course, I mean, we're talking about this is something that everyone can identify with. Uh, you know, if they tried to uh, buy a used car, for example, we've seen used car prices go up. That's just a silly example. But, uh, you know, grocery prices, obviously, we always make that distinction on this show because we're smart. And that is, there's <laughs> asset inflation, that's your house, uh, you know, stocks, et cetera. That's not what they're measuring, uh, you know, with the consumer price index. That's what the Bank of Canada talks about is the CPI. That's what uh, Larry Fink is talking about. Your everyday cost of living is about to go up. And, uh, you know, it's significant if you're talking, you know, look at that 5% plus in the States in June. Uh, Mike, uh, and the reason uh, that we see is that the Fed, the U.S. Federal Reserve, and the Bank of Canada are laser-focused on the employment market. They want to see, they have to see people coming back to work. They They have to see uh, pre-COVID numbers, and they are going to let inflation go in order to get the workforce back to work. And um, Fink takes a look at that, and he says that employees, now, now focusing more on jobs, employees with more wage growth that will be above the trend line. In other words, it's going to be, it's going to raise inflation just the uh, amount that they're going to have to pay employees and people coming back, all that money that there is to spend. But Fed Chair uh, Jay Powell continues to hold firm. There's going to be no rate increases. And Fink says the possibility that inflation could persist as high as 3.5%, that poses questions of, you know, on central bankers and how are they going to act if it does get up there, if it continues to grow. The central bankers, are they going to lay back and, and continue to worry about employment and how many people are working? Or are they going to try and nip it in the bud? And the huge question is, even a whiff, even just the slightest move of talking about raising rates could be very impactful on the markets. And I think that's what both the Bank of Canada and the U.S. Federal Reserve are worried about, is even if they just if they were to raise rates a tenth of one percent, it could bring an avalanche of selling into the markets. At the other side, of course, is people with interest rates. That if inflation's running at say three and a half percent, as as Mr. Fink is uh, suggesting it will, why the heck would I own a government bond that's paying me one and a half percent or a five-year bond at one point three? You know that kind of stuff. That's where they get stuck between a rock and a hard place because governments are going to borrow a tremendous amount of money. Who wants it at that rate if you've got, who wants one and a half percent 
if I'm losing buying power every year because inflation's running at three and a half. So is it means the central banks are going to buy forever to keep rates down? I mean, there's a lot of questions here. And as you said, you know, you go with uh, what prices we're going to pay uh, in our everyday lives, what our interest rates are going to do. Uh, it's going to have implications for currency rates. It really is impactful. Oh, Mike, it's hugely impactful. And uh, just, you know, on a side note, uh, some economists surveyed by the Wall Street Journal as a group raised their forecasts for uh, forecasts for inflation in the U.S., 3.2% in the fourth quarter of 2021, 2.3% and 2.2% mm-hmm. in 2022 and 23. That's the highest levels since the early 1990s. So if that starts to happen, the big question is, is there going to be central bank action? And I think that that's what we've got to look forward But uh, according to Fink and according to a lot of other learned economists and business leaders is inflation is going to be a problem and banks are going to have to central banks are going to have to raise rates. Well, it arguably be the biggest story in finance going forward in the next several months into next year. Mike, we'll be there to chronicle it. Have a great weekend. You too, Mike. Thanks. Pleased to welcome back to the show Ryan King. He's a senior VP corporate development with Caliber Mining. Ryan, thanks for finding the time with us. And uh, I was looking at something that Caliber was doing, and this is what spurred on wanting to chat with you, is that Caliber is one of those juniors that uh, I kind of like the process there where you have uh, sold about 44,000 ounces of gold just in the second quarter, but you're reinvesting that money into exploration. So it's self-finance. And I, I would think that's a model that's attractive to investors. Yeah, Mike, thanks very much for having me back on the show. And you're absolutely right. You know, a junior gold producer that has cash flows that can reinvest into their business, because we know that we're always depleting future revenues. And so, you know, for a junior gold producer that makes a discovery or can expand resources, is huge value add for investors. And that's exactly what Caliber is doing. We're reinvesting in multi different facets of the business, but particularly exploration and I think we have a total of 16 rigs operating right now. So it's very exciting for our investors. And that's what we look for. Yeah, the key is that um, it's self-financing, though, is because, it's, well, you know, look, I, I'm, I'm an old guy, so I know all the market cycles, you know, but, you know, you go through yeah. these periods where it's very tough to raise capital and then other periods where it's far easier. So if you're self-financed, obviously, you can continue with an exploration program, um, you know, and I'm thinking also that's what seniors would look for in a junior, too, that they're doing the constant exploration. You know, you're, you're bang on. You know, we, we have the cash flow so we don't have to go back to the market. Right. And th- and that's, I think, an area of, of risk that people would look for is that, hey, these guys have cash flow. They can reinvest to make significant new discoveries or expansion of resources. Uh, and therefore, you don't have to dilute your shareholders further. So it's really critical. Uh, you just mentioned you have 16 drills going on right now uh, at Caliber. Uh, I'm just interested to know is when you have that many going, is there sort of a, a, a number that you think, oh, we got to have at least five going or you got to have at least 10 going, you know, that kind of thing? Well, I guess <clears throat> in honesty, it, it just comes down to the geological potential that a particular mm-hmm. company sees in front of them. I mean, for us, we've been expanding our land package. Uh, we've been doing some infill, so confidence building from a lower category of resource to a higher category. Uh, so, you know, in some cases from inferred resources all the way up to reserves. So that really helps build the confidence and the predictability for planning 
and mining in the future, but also, and then you start looking out at, at new targets beyond that. So, you know, from, from, from some cases, it could be a geochemistry anomaly or it could be a structure that the geologists really want to drill. So we have a multifaceted exploration program that deals with building confidence, but also finding new and discovery, which is very exciting for, uh, for us, for Caliber. I just, I'm just thinking of, uh, you know, for investors here, uh, it seems to me that stock value always goes way up, stock prices go up when, you know, a new discovery is kind of made. So, I mean, I guess I'm, I'm looking for junior producers that I guess have to commit the resources to identify kind of uh, yep. new targets. Yeah, no, that's uh, that, that's really critical because, um, you know, as I mentioned, we're always depleting future revenues. And so rather than, uh, you know, looking at other things, you have to be looking at unearthing uh, uh, new opportunities for your business and for your mines and for your for your mills. I mean, in our case, with Caliber, we've got two mills. One is is being 100 percent utilized today and a second larger mill is being used only at 50 percent today. So we've got inherent growth that we have the infrastructure. And so if we can find something, we could potentially fill that mill and have significant organic growth. So that's one of the reasons that Caliber looks for new opportunities and has been applying for new ground and has all of these drills turning because a new discovery for us is meaningful, even if it's, you know, call it 100 to 200,000 ounces. See, we could, we could uh, permit that uh, following the, the mining legislation and yet we wouldn't need to put in a new mill or a new tailings. So this is a great opportunity for particularly Caliber, but all juniors, you're going to want to reinvest in exploration. And, uh, and hopefully you've got the ground, the fertile ground to do that, to make those discoveries. And in, and in Caliber, Caliber's case, we definitely see that in front of us. Ryan, just a couple of seconds left. Okay, so if I'm an investor, what kind of time frame should I be looking at? I mean, these are obviously aggressive uh, you're speculating on uh, more fines, et cetera. But I think having your own production uh, that finances it uh, reduces that risk. But how many, you know, am I a six-month holder? Do I hold it for two years? What? Just v- give me the 10-second version. Yeah, honestly, I, I, I believe that with Caliber, you're getting exposure to gold, the gold price. And we believe that's probably going to go higher given what's happening in the world mm-hmm. of finance. But more importantly, I mean, we've got all these drills turning. So I would say that within 12 months, uh, there's going to be a, some exciting news flow from Caliber and all the drilling that we're doing. And that's, and that's with all these drills turning, that's what you look for. Time now for this week's quote of the week. Well, there's a culture war going on in many areas of education, so prominent in the U.S., where a major blowback by parents is taking place over the application of what's called critical race theory. Wall Street Journal's Peggy Noonan writes in quotes, go to social media sites and search school board meeting, adding descriptors like explosive, outrage, and chaos. Parents are rising up, up in arms. And with the Ontario grade nine math curriculum stating in quotes, mathematics has been used to normalize racism and marginalization of non-Eurocentric mathematical knowledges and a decolonial anti-racist approach to mathematics education makes visible its historical roots and social constructions, end of quote. Well, that's borrowed directly from the U.S. So you know the culture war is also heating up in Canada. Which brings me to my quote of the week. Peter Bogazian is an assistant professor of philosophy at Portland State University. He's an uh, author. His academic focus is on atheism, critical thinking, scientific skepticism, uh, Socratic method. Writing in the Wall Street Journal, he states, you've almost certainly heard some of the following terms, cisgender, 
fat shaming, heteronormativity, intersectionality, patriarchy, rape culture, and whiteness. The reason you've heard them is that politically engaged academicians have been developing concepts like these for more than 30 years, and all that time they've been percolating. Only recently have they begun to emerge in mainstream culture. These academicians accomplish this by passing off their ideas as knowledge, that is, as if these terms describe the facts about the world and social reality. And while some of these ideas may contain bits of truth, they aren't scientific. By and large, they're the musings of ideologues, end of quote. I'll add that they do a good job exacerbating divisions in society. I'm very pleased to welcome back to the show Patrick Charisma, founder, derivative market specialist, but he's the founder of Big Picture Trading. Patrick, thanks for finding time for us. Well, thank you, Michael, for having me back on the show. Let's let's get into this one. I, I was talking earlier with Michael Levy. I say it's maybe the biggest debate in finance today. Just give us a quick take on the sort of inflation transitory or is it more entrenched, you know, versus the deflation debate? Right. Well, I mean, I think, first of all, there's a bigger debate as to whether this inflation surge that we've had is secular or whether it's transitory. And uh, obviously, the secular argument is gaining steam, this idea that it's no longer just about central banks and quantitative easing, but rather a new regime of uh, government-driven fiscal intervention uh, through spending or through commercial loan guarantees. And this idea that this inflation is here to stay Uh, But I remain, at least in this current surge of inflation in the transitory camp, which is that a lot of this inflation that we're seeing today uh, was caused by supply side shocks, uh, which will adjust. And uh, and this idea that, uh, like, uh, for instance, a lot of it was driven uh, by the huge surge, uh, historical surge in the spending and uh, durable goods. Uh, that it basically drove prices like lumber or and other commodities like that higher that that has driven these high inflation prints but uh, all of this will be adjusting no different than lumber going from let's say 500 up to 1800 back down to 500 and uh, so this current inflation we're now seeing this period where uh, it will start to normalize and i think that that's driving a lot of the already profit cycles that we are seeing in uh, things like the commodity stocks and so on. Well, one of the, the, you know, of course, the implications, as I was alluding to earlier in the show, are just huge because, of course, the impact on just our daily lives and what we're spending, but also the impact on interest rates. And and so let's come to interest rates for a second. I mean, obviously, it's central banks that have, excuse me, that have kept interest rates <coughs> low through their, uh, you know, aggressive buying of government securities and and guaranteeing other securities also in the in the you know the borrowing markets, do you think this just goes on forever? Can they ever afford to back off? I know the Bank of Canada has backed off a little, or saying they're going to, from buying three billion every week of securities now down to two billion. Uh, maybe that's their attempt to exit that market. Uh, do you see that as uh, you know, if we go out a few years, they're going to be able to have accomplished that? Well, it's not going to last forever, but we certainly, uh, maybe for even the, uh, the remainder of the decade, will continue to see this low interest rate regime. I mean, uh, my, my narrative remains that uh, where we are in a period of financial repression, which is, uh, which is the um, basic wealth transfer uh, through a liquidation tax of keeping negative real interest rates. And I, for your listeners, I want to make sure to differentiate 
negative what real interest rates are versus nominal interest yes, rates please. because uh, we we see nominal interest rates which is the interest rates that are printed on on our screens uh, which is you know the a 10-year bond is uh, paying let's say one and a half percent or something like this that's uh, that's uh, the nominal rate but the real interest rate is the differential between inflation and that nominal yield and financial repression is this idea of allowing inflation to run much hotter than uh, and suppressing uh, in interest rates, particularly government interest rates, uh, than what we pay on government bonds uh, to create a negative differential between the two. And this is a wealth transfer because it's a, basically a hidden tax on savers uh, and transferring it to creditors, particularly the government. And it's a it's a more tenable way to uh, to tax and, and to rebalance the debt than to actually increase uh, taxes through legislation. And so this period of dealing with uh, with um, uh, the debt that's existing in the system will perpetuate. And I don't think it's going away, not in not least for this decade. Well, and again, you know, for individuals, who's the biggest beneficiary of rates that get manipulated too low? Well, it's obviously government. They're the biggest borrower out there. I mean, others right. benefit too. If I want to buy a house and my mortgage rate's low, obviously that's a benefit to me. But the biggest benef uh, uh, people who benefit are governments who borrowed this record amount of money. So great. They get to pay record low interest rates. But as you say, Patrick, such an important point that if inflation's running, you know, and it is running significantly higher than say what I'm getting on a 10-year bond or a five-year bond or what have you, well, I'm paying back in dollars. I'm, the government is paying back that debt that, you know, I've lent the money, I bought a bond, and they're paying it back to me in dollars that don't buy as much stuff. So, yeah, exactly. it, it's, it's a good deal for government, that's for sure. Oh, that, and, that, and that is not going away. And so this period of very low interest rates uh, is going to stay, and uh, they're going to allow inflation to run much hotter. And even though I believe that the current surge where, you know, we're seeing inflation running, uh, you know, towards uh, 5% on an annualized basis, I think that that's going to take a break and it's going to come back a little bit. But uh, the idea that governments actually want to allow this inflation to run much hotter than it normally would is here to stay. Uh, and, uh, and I think that uh, as soon as we see this uh, kind of corrective phase that we started a month or two ago come all, uh, all play itself out, I think that uh, we're going to see a lot more of the same, including a return of the commodity bull market. Patrick Sarizna is with me, big picture trading. Patrick, I want to just go, okay, we sort of described uh, sort of the actions of the central banks. We watch inflation go higher than actual interest rates are, which means real rates are declining. But I want to come to the practical of that and talk about various uh, impact on uh, things like gold. So maybe give me enough time, but if you can start with that. Well, sure. I mean, I think, uh, well, the, my outlook on gold is very much the same as my outlook on uh, all commodities as an aggregate, which is uh, when you're in a period of inflation, uh, and particularly if the idea that secular inflation will be with us for the next decade, there's an increased desire to hold real assets. And gold is, of course, one of those key real assets. Uh, and what we continue to see is, is that uh, all of these commodities remain structurally undervalued versus particularly financial assets uh, and are still considerably undervalued on a relative basis. Uh, and overall, uh, while there has been an extraordinary bull run 
in most commodities. And, and we've seen that generally the investor community still remains relatively underweight these real assets. So there's a lot of reasons why you want to still remain bullish commodities. Uh, and But uh, what we can see right now is that uh, there was a short-term cyclical overshoot on the upside of many of these uh, uh, commodities. And what we're in the midst of right now is a corrective phase or uh, in that cyclicality that always will lead to a buying opportunity. And so right now, even though we're seeing many of these spaces all correcting, I, I'm quite bullish these and will look at this as an extraordinary opportunity to be able to buy some of these assets uh, on the cheap when after such a great run uh, since November. I think the challenge for investors uh, looking at anything is uh, there's a sort of a, a story that's dominant out there and, and commodities came back in the limelight. And I'm proud to say we were on top of that before it started. And uh, but it's the thing I was trying to bring to investors uh, top of mind is how much of that story has been already factored in? Like, so how much of the um, renewable energy story is factored into the copper price already? Have people anticipated a big demand in copper? So you're saying that uh, we're not there yet. It's under-owned, uh, and, I, I, and I'm with you, by the way, completely. I think these dips are an opportunity. Uh, you know, there, right. but people I have to know what the they're doing into. Yeah. On the short term, it was an overshoot. Uh, yeah. and, and so what we're seeing now is, is that uh, everyone got a little ahead of themselves and, uh, and much of that was uh, fully priced in. And now uh, once we see that uh, at least a lot of really smart money out there is seeing that uh, that reflation trade may be pausing here, they're using it as an opportunity to profit take. And so we're seeing whether it's in the energy space, whether it's in the copper plays or whether it's in the gold miners, we're seeing all of them uh, going through some degree of a, uh, of a correction. But uh, once uh, that excess has been corrected out, uh, there, I, I believe that uh, there's a bigger bull market, a secular bull market in commodities that is there that will uh, make all of these uh, extraordinary buying opportunities once this correction is fully played out. Uh, and let me just, are you including oil in that, who of course has had an incredible run up above $70, but I still see that there's uh, a lot more demand coming in very quickly as, as I don't think anybody was a genius to have to think there'd be pent up demand to travel as soon as that was okayed. Canada might get the okay for international travelers coming in here uh, again. So I still see demand coming. I don't, I'm not sure if that, I'm not surprised at these sort of pullbacks when people take profits, et cetera, but it looks like there's a lot more demand behind that. Uh, just right. as we open up. Absolutely. Uh, uh, the energy space uh, also has a political element to it. Uh, it's mm. still that constrains the uh, supply side response to the rise in oil. It, it seems uh, a lot of people still obviously view energy as, uh, as dirty and that's not the future. And so getting a lot of the um, uh, oil pumping in, uh, in North America up again is simply there isn't a lot of, of uh, motivation to get things fired up. That response is very slow. And that, uh, that means that we would need much of that supply response to be uh, occurring overseas, which arguably may uh, start to, to come into play sh uh, over the interim. But one of the interesting things, Michael, that I uh, was observing over the last month was the substantial divergence from uh, oil prices uh, to that of energy stocks. And while oil continued uh, its way higher north of 
of uh, you know seventy dollars heading to seventy five plus dollars on the upside. Many of these energy companies already began uh, some degree of a market correction, and uh, that to me uh, was a, a sort of a canary in the coal mine. And that's where uh, option strategies such as coloring came into play, where uh, we locked in a lot of the energy advance. Uh, using uh, an options collar around our energy companies rather than selling our core positions. Okay, I don't want to confuse people. We don't have enough time here, but give me a, a, what's a collar? Uh, the collar is a combination of uh, one of your favorite strategies, covered call writing, uh, which is the idea of collecting income, selling uh, with energy stocks being so overbought and the upside being minimal uh, from these levels, you go and collect or harvest an income premium, but you rather than keeping that as an income stream, you use the proceeds to buy a protective put to hedge the mm-hmm. downside risk. And so uh, what it does is it usually for a very little to uh, uh, small debit cost, you limit the downside risk. And so when many of these energy companies started to correct on the downside, we were able to have hedged out much of that pullback. So again, and we'll put some of that up on our, our website so people remember a call option just gives somebody the right to buy that stock from you for a stated time. So maybe you say, you know what, I think it's about to get weak for the next three months. I'll give someone the, the right to buy it from me at 80 bucks right through September. You take a premium, they pay you for that. And Patrick's saying, take that premium and buy protection to the downside, meaning you can sell it, a put. You can sell it to somebody else at a specific price. And that's a, those are why I think it's just so important. I know you people specialize at, at big, uh, you do at big picture trading, uh, but it's such an important mission in your arsenal to protect yourself and, as you say, gain more income. Uh, you know, and there's a lot. Sure. A lot, a lot around that. I think that's that's great stuff. One, um, one of one of the key things, Michael, that I, I want to just contribute to yeah. to adding to what a point you're making was that a lot of people find it very difficult to want to sell a position they're making good money on, uh, and so uh, the idea that things are overbought, the idea of I'm going to just sell it, is especially when it's a core part of your portfolio. Most people are not motivated to do that. The caller gives you the ability to de-risk your position without actually having to sell it. And I think that's one of the most important things uh, to, to always take into account when, when considering the strategy. Uh, great stuff. The other thing you brought up, we only have a minute left, but I, I really like is the rotation in the marketplace itself. So the overall index may not have fallen much, but you might be looking at a particular group that's had a full correction. I mean, we know that, for example, with Tesla, had an mag- unbelievable yeah. run up to 900, then drops back down to 500. Well, the overall market didn't necessarily show you that. You have to look inside the groups themselves. Uh, you know, as you say, we're seeing that for the lumber run up. Now we're seeing it for the decline, you know, pull back on that. I just think that's an important point that we are getting rotations within the market. Yes. Yeah, there, there is a rolling correction going on. But one thing to point out is that the, the market breadth has been deteriorating all year. We're now to a stage where only 40% of stocks mm. in the, on the New York Stock Exchange are above their 50-day moving averages. There's a very broad market correction that is being hidden by the fact that those uh, very large mega cap stocks like Apple and Microsoft keep the major indices at all-time highs while uh, we see uh, more and more sectors starting to rotate and sell. And that is uh, usually a sign of uh, a market that is relatively weak. And uh, with us now going into that seasonal window of August, September, October, Mm -hmm. where a lot of markets uh, tend to be weak, 
this is a period where you're probably better off uh, taking the summer off rather than putting money to work and, uh, well, I've and got wait a, till after yeah. Labor Day to get to put new money into the market. Time now for the shocking stat of the week. You remember all that talk about innovation? It's the key to both our social and economic future. I think it's the buzziest of buzzwords. I mean, looking back at the 2018 federal budget, the, world in, the word innovation was used 196 times. I guess that's why it was such a concern when the supercluster fund, which was based on focusing on innovation, and it was projected to produce 50,000 jobs, but the parliamentary budget office says now maybe like 4,000. But that brings me to my shocking stat of the week. This is a report by Australia's To Think Now. It ranked, I think it was 169 cities across the world, major centers, on 162 indicators. Well, in a nutshell, Canada's major urban centers felt like a stone when it came to innovation. Toronto, which finished in, as the 10th most innovative city in the world in 2019, fell to 43rd. Vancouver and Calgary, Vancouver's ranked 36th, Calgary 89th in 2019, didn't even make the top 100. Now, I don't think these kinds of surveys are the be-all to end-all, but they are worth noting if there's a trend developing, especially in conjunction with the re relentless drop we've had in capital investment in Canada. We've had a declining competitiveness ranking. So I'm taking a look at that, and I see that, and it hardly spells good news. Noteworthy, though, is Christopher Heyer, he's the director of Two Think Now, blames the performance on Canadian government policies that stifle competition. You know, it's interesting to think, though, the drop in our competitiveness or the drop in capital investment isn't even on the political agenda. I bet it's not in the top 10 issues mentioned by politicians, despite the fact that it'll have a major impact on our standard of living. I just keep coming back to that comment by Alex Usher, who's the president of Higher Education Strategy Associates, Associates states, politically, there is no longer a political home for growth-oriented policies in Canada. And it seems like an awful lot of us haven't figure out, figured out yet the cost of that. Let me bring Ozzy Jurek back on the fold here. Hey, Ozzy, by the way, I was thinking of you and Joe. Uh, my wife and I went, uh, Kathy, went to the West Coast Wilderness Lodge. And it's up on the Sunshine Coast. So that means you take a ferry from Horseshoe Bay to Langdale. And you drive for about a, it's only about an hour and a half to Egmont. I can tell you, this is one of the most spectacular places I've ever been near Princess Louisa Inlet, Chatterbox Falls, and I'm recommending it for you and Joe. Well, that's wonderful. I mean, in fact, uh, I, I do it all the time. I spend my boat, I, I put in Secret Cove. I've written yep. about it that it, it's like the greatest uh, thing to do is go to Secret Cove, hire a, a ferry to Thormanby Island. I call it the poor man's beach, you know, because you're 20 <laughs> yes. bucks to get over there, and you can have a glorious time on a on a Hawaii-like beach, and if you go to Chatterbox Falls, or if you go into the rapids, or if you go to Crinslow, Lisa Inlet, it's mind-boggling. Yeah, that's what it was. The West Coast Wilderness Lodge does such a fine, first-class place. Uh, we did exactly that. We took uh, a boat up to Princess Louisa and Chatterbox, that whole area around that secret cove as you go further into Egmont. I'm just recommending it. You want a great weekend? I'm highly recommending it. So there you go. Hey, speaking totally of that. For it. Actually, Earl Stanley Gardner, who wrote Perry Mason, he said, if you have not found God, you will find him in Princess Louisa Inlet. 
<laughs> That's great. And it's so convenient. I mean, you get to Vancouver, it's so easy. You just go 45 minute ferry up to Langdale and then drive for an hour and a half. I couldn't believe yeah. how close it was, let alone if you go float plane, it's about 25 minutes from downtown Vancouver. A lot of people come up from the Seattle area. Again, about a 40 minute ride. That's it. So there's my recommendation for the week. Finally, it's, it's been worth listening to this show, West Coast Wilderness Lodge. <laughs> hey, Ozzy, I want to talk to you about a really interesting study that I know you've been talking about on OzBuzz, but is the down payments people are making to purchase their houses in this big housing boom, because, of course, that's got a lot to do with whether uh, there's sort of stability in the market or not. You know, if I don't put much down, then the slightest price disruption can cause me some trouble. But when I do put a chunk down, uh, you know, I've got a, a lot more protection before a price decline sort of impacts my equity uh, or, you yeah. know, directly and the bank lending, that kind of stuff. So it's really interesting to see that wherever, you know, wherever you are, it's different amounts that people put down. Yeah, and it's mind-boggling when you consider everybody thinks it's sort of an average of 5%. Well, in BC, we're spending 22.5% of our purchase uh, as, a, as a down payment. So that's an average amount of 160000 And when you compare that to Alberta, where the average down payment is 63000 that's two and a half times more. And guess what? In Quebec, we're paying 102000 more than the average person in Quebec. Now, remember, these average prices like the 916000 in BC or Quebec at 449 or Alberta at 442, they are, of course, province-wide prices. In the city of Vancouver, the, the amounts would be even more staggering. But it would seem to me that, as I said, that if we're putting 20% down, uh, you know, the bank or all the fuss about the vulnerability of the housing market, that puts a pretty good cushion there. Yeah, it is. It blows me away that continuously our actually our rates of default are less than one and a half of one percent. It's point point zero something. We are paying 20 percent down when normally sort of the, the lowest risk are in the five percent. area. We're paying on average, on average, 20 percent down and CMHC just did, didn't want the business last year. They scared us to death by forecasting an 18% oh, yeah. decline in price. You and I talked about it at Infinitum. Where do they get this from? They almost had an anti-buying stage when they're supposed to be on our side, like the home housing agency. They're bringing in all these rules. Well, guess what? Now they found out they lost all this money because the people said, the hell with you, we're going to get for a private lender. And they lost 30% of their business. And they reversed all of the rules that they brought in last July. And we're back to square one. Yeah, I mean, let's, you know, of course, we did talk about that because we were so shocked at their forecast, you know, being this massive decline coming in real estate against a backdrop of record low mortgage rates, um, you know, which, of course, provided a lot of stability. And now this, uh, when we're seeing that people are willingly putting down that level of down payment on their purchase price, and it's expensive. Obviously, the more expensive markets, the more you're putting down, but people are doing it. Uh, again, uh, stability in the markets there, and the panic that I'm hearing about that people have borrowed to be in the real estate market, I don't think is justified by the kind of foreclosure stats you just mentioned, which have been consistent. Go back to the subprime mortgage crisis. We did not foreclose on our mortgages. Right. Well, the thing is, just very quickly, in my book, Forget About Location, Location, in 1998, uh, the average price for BC White was around 200000 Average down payment was around 15000 Now, there you have inflation, right? You know, mm-hmm. In this period of time, you, you put down a, a Mickey Mouse money as compared to the 160000 you have to come up with. There's inflation everywhere, and it's visible and it's continuing. 
the other thing that gets me thinking is you're an old guy. You're an old guy, Ozzy. <laughs> and, and so I'm going to let you go. No, I want you to go out and have a terrific weekend. Let's go live to the trading desk. Victor Adair joins me now. <clears throat> Excuse me, Vic. I'm watching a lot of changes in the market. You've been talking to us about a major key turning bait, a date, uh, May 10th to the 12th. You're saying it's a key turn date. And we certainly have seen some reverses, some to the upside, though, and some to the downside here. But they, they look pretty sharp at this point. Well, Patrick was talking about the rotation that we've seen in the market. That's a word we've used uh, several times here lately. Uh, Mike, the, the first two weeks of July is historically one of the best periods of the year for the stock market. We've had the NASDAQ 100, uh, for instance, has been the hottest index of all of the major stock indices since that key turn date you referred to back in May. It's rallied about 15% since in the last two months. It's had eight consecutive weeks where it's closed higher, and this week it made a new all-time high and turned lower. The Russell 2000, which is an index of small-cap stocks, it's traded lower the past three weeks. It's actually closed this week at its lowest weekly close since January. You know, that's kind of part of that rotation. Some of the markets indices are, you know, strong. Others are weak. Mike, what I'm basically seeing here is over the past couple of months anyway, there has been a very strong pro-risk sentiment in the market, and that's taken the stock markets higher, that's taken the commodity markets higher, and I think that trend of the last couple of months here is running out of gas a little bit. That's the way I'm playing it. In a general way, I would say to our listeners, you know, it's been a great run. You know, maybe look at taking some risk off the table. The things that have been going up here the past uh, two months or so have been the bond market and the U.S. dollar. So I think that's, you know, it all fits with the stocks and commodities have been going up. The U.S. dollar uh, now continuing to trend higher. I think we're just getting a turn in the market, another one of those rotations. Again, I'm not talking about I think the stock market's going to zero, not that at all. I just think we've had a great run, and it's, it's, this week looked a little ominous, the way all of the indices closed right on their lows for the week. And your point, again, is it's an important one. People should just not fall asleep here. It's easy to fall asleep. But instead, you've got to, with your professional, review your portfolio. Are you taking an appropriate amount of risk? Are you worried if you take money off the table? One of my questions, Vic, was always, if it went down 20%, would that bother me if I didn't get out more than if I did get out and it went up 20%? So you have to know what your psychology is, too. I never enjoyed those down moves. Let me just say that, Vic. I was prepared well, to yeah. lose a lot of up moves, but I did not enjoy the down moves. You know, absolutely, Mike. I, I talk in my blog this week a little bit about you know, losing money, and I make it clear, I do not like to lose money. All of the risk management habits that I have are designed to make sure I just never take a big loss. You know, taking little losses to me is just like a cost of doing business. You, you get into a trade, you have no idea where any of these markets are going. You know, there's maybe some marketing people out there that tell you that they know for sure that a market's going up or going down. I have no idea, really. So I, I take what I think is a considered risk. Sometimes I'm wrong. Last week, you know, when I talked on the show, I had just bought the Canadian dollar. I've been trading it from the short side of the past couple of months. It closed very strong Friday last week. I bought the Canadian dollar. I was wrong. I blew it out. You know, it took a very small loss. 
instead of staying with something that's losing money, I like to get out of it and get into something that's going my way. So taking uh, small losses, to me, just a cost of business. But for crying out loud, you got to make sure you never get clobbered with a big loss. You know, that's, that's just the wrong, wrong, wrong thing to do. So that's one of the things I love about uh, when you talk about the markets, Vic, is as a professional, someone who's been in the markets 45 years, sorry, I just aged you. He looks way better than that, folks, but 45 Absolutely. years. <laughs> but no, but it's, it's what a professional does, and that is they learn risk management. And you can tell why that would drive me crazy in politics. They make these statements with with no caveats whatsoever, like there's never any risk, you know, kind of thing. But a professional... Uh, you know, manages their risk. And that comes through loud and clear. And we're in a period, you heard Patrick uh, say a similar thing, that you want to, it's a time, I don't know what your individual circumstances are, but it's time to review and see, are you taking an appropriate amount of risk? If not, I don't see there's any harm taking a little rest here and then re-entering if that's the case. But there are, it is a choppy market with a lot of uncertainty out there, Vic. And as you say, you're starting to see that manifest in the charts. Well, over the past few years, particularly when we've had the central banks and now the governments pushing a lot of money into the market, people have been rewarded for taking mm-hmm. more risk than they probably should have. I've characterized it as reaching for yield. You know, when you get nothing to have money in a savings account, you start making some investments. And when they work out, you go, well, gee whiz, this is, this is easy. I should have been doing this all the time. And so you take more risk, and you get away with that. And I'm using that pejoratively. You get away with it. Well, you know, you go down that road far enough, sooner or later you're going to end up with, uh, you're going to get bit. So I'm just saying, you know, back off a bit from the risk. Great stuff as always. Go to victoradare.ca, victoradare.ca. Have a great weekend, Vic. Thanks, Mike. You too. Well, mass protests in Cuba over what protesters call the shortages of the necessities of life. And we're starting with food and medicine. And by the way, the Cuban government refused help with COVID. They wanted to develop their own vaccine. And it's had devastating results, the failure there. But food, you had literally women crying, our children are starving to death. Not a problem for the communist elites, by the way. They're not starving. They're the ones who run the country. Every major human rights organization chronicled the torture, imprisonment of political opponents, the re-education camps for homosexuals. As Mike Gonzalez wrote in the Wall Street Journal, 17 years ago, he said, many Cubans were killed. Others went to prison. Millions had their dignity trampled daily because of the left's love affair with a tyrant many considered picaresque. Yet so many in the West ignored the tragedy of the people. I'm talking celebrities like Robert Redford, Oliver Stone, Ted Turner. It's the same, by the way, with Nicolas Maduro's regime in Venezuela. Exemplified by the support of major unions in Canada, like Unifor, Canadian Union of Postal Workers, Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation, along with support from the Canadian Union of Public Employees, the United Church of Canada, rabble.ca, all lauding Venezuela's election as a strong and vibrant democracy. Well, you know what? The Organization of American States Panel and Human Rights Experts, that was with people from Canada, Argentina, Chile, uh, Colombia, Paraguay, Peru, conducted hearings into the election and concluded that Maduro's regime should be referred to the International Criminal Court for Crimes Against Humanity. 
including excuse me, thousands of cases of murder, torture, and imprisonment against political opponents. But yet we had some Canadian unions applauding. But none has won the adulation of the left like Fidel Castro has in Cuba. As Mark Stein wrote, the enduring sheen of revolutionary chic is in forlorn contrast to the decrepitude of the real thing. The real thing? Well, it hit the streets this week. Thousands protesting throughout the country, demanding freedom from the communist regime. While many leftists in Europe abandoned their support of Castro in the early, well, gosh, I think like, I can remember it in 2002, 2003, 2004. Remember 2004, Castro imprisoned 77 dissidents, including some artists and poets. There was the summary execution of three men caught trying to escape Cuba by boat. Literally, they were caught, executed the next day. Well, that had a lot to do with it. That was enough. No mass for many of the uh, European left, but not in Canada. We're turning a blind eye to human rights violations and totalitarianism is still in vogue. Two leaders of the federal, uh, well, in the upcoming election, Prime Minister Trudeau, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, both lauded Fidel Castro. Are you kidding? When he died in 2016. Well, maybe that's because Mr. Trudeau's, is, as I say, the apple doesn't far from his tree. Pierre Trudeau called Castro a friend, and this was during the height of the extreme human rights abuses. You can't get away from this. I'll leave the final word to celebrated economist Thomas Sowell. How a man who holds the entire population of a country as his prisoners and punishes the families of those who escape can be admired by people who call themselves liberals is one of the many wonders of the human mind's ability to rationalize. Yet such is the case with Fidel Castro. Well, the people are in the streets and they're there for good reason. Hey, just a reminder, I want you to join me on Mike's Money Talks uh, on Twitter and on Facebook, Money Talks Tweet, because we can give you some information there that I don't think is in the public domain, not regularly in the public domain. That's all I'm saying. It's something that, again, you can have a look at. And, uh, I, you know, my goal is just to broaden the conversation, to extend the conversation. And uh, whatever your opinions are, I think that's great. But the more information we have, I think the better it is. The more questions we ask, it better it is. We hope to facilitate that on Facebook and on Twitter. And of course, on Mike's moneytalks.ca. Subscribe to the Money Talks with Michael Campbell podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere you get your on-demand audio for the complete show, daily podcasts, and more. 